Isaiah 9 again today. There's an old Southern Gospel song called The Family of God. The first verse says, you'll notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family and these folks are so near. When one has a heartache, we all shed a tear and rejoice in each victory in this family so near. My mom is convinced the church of Jesus Christ in every city and every town and every building should sing that song every time they gather together to remind them of what the church is meant to be. We're not meant to be a group of individuals who gather together once or twice a week to sing some songs and, and listen to a lecture. We're meant to be a family. And it's meant to be a unique family. It's not a family where we all have the same physical parents. It's not meant to be a family where we all have the same ethnicity. It's not meant to be a family where we're all alike in, in all of these other ways. There is meant to be kind of one guiding principle that, that holds us together as a family, and that we've all been born again, and we all have the same spiritual father. Now, all people are created by God with God's desire being they would be born again and He would adopt them as His children. And they would be a part of His family here on earth. And I can say with absolute certainty, God wants to adopt you into His family if you've not been adopted. And I can say with certainty that in God's family you're important. And in God's family, you're accepted. In God's family, you're loved. In God's family, you always fit in and you always have a place and people who care. And I can say that because of what we see in the Word. Open your Bible, if you haven't, to Isaiah 9. I'm going to read the first seven verses, but we'll focus on verse 6. should be page 523 in the Pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as it was in her vexation when the first, at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy of harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff off his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David... And upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Title of the message this morning is Jesus, the Everlasting Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We are thankful for the great privilege we have to gather, to worship you, Lord, to 
to study your word, the freedom we have to do this without fear, without worry about what may happen. We are thankful, Lord, that though this year has been tough, Father, you are good and you have been good and you will continue to be good. We are thankful to to get to celebrate Jesus and what he has done for us and the opportunities he has given us and the, the salvation we have and the fact that we have been born again through faith in him and been adopted as your children. What an amazing thing to know that you, you look down at us. You saw us not in all of our glory, not in, in all of our wonder and how amazing we were, but you saw us as we are sinners. People who were in deep rebellion against you, who had no care and no concern for you. And, and, and rather than looking with anger, you looked with love. You sent your son to come and be our savior. To make it so we could be reconciled to you. We could know you. And we could experience your love in our lives. Let us not take that for granted. Let us not think this is a minor thing of what you have done for us this season. And as we look at Jesus this season as the babe in the manger. Let us always remember he is also the king on the cross. And that the cross was the reason he came. And let us be just moved in awe at what you've done for us through Christ. As we look at your word this morning, God has to lay aside the cares of life and any issues or concerns we may have brought in. And just for a, a brief period of time to listen to what you have for us. Let your spirit cause us to be focused. Let him take your word and, and use it in our lives to open our eyes, to open our minds, to speak to our hearts, to encourage the discouraged, to strengthen the weak, to save the lost, to restore the prodigal, to heal the broken hearts, to just work in our lives so that when we leave here, we would say, we know the living God was among us today. Fill me with your spirit and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. And we will give you all the glory for you alone deserve it. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So at the time of the writing of Isaiah 9, the people of Judah and Jerusalem were facing a severe crisis. They were about to be attacked by the Syrian kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel. For years, northern Israel and Syria had been bitter enemies, but the threat of the nation of Assyria had caused them to form an alliance. Syria and northern Israel had tried to pressure Judah into joining the alliance and they had refused. So what they had done is they, Syria and northern Israel had decided to go together and they were going to attack Judah. They were going to conquer Judah and they would either force the king at that point to go along with their plan or they would, they would dispose the king and they would put another king on there who would support their rebellion against the Assyrian Empire. Now, for Judah, everything looked hopeless. The end of Isaiah chapter 8, there was a spirit of anguish that was gripped the heart of the people. They were living in this war-torn nation. Many they known had died. They felt completely helpless. Most of the nation had already fallen to the Assyrians who were sweeping across the land, conquering everything in sight. It was a dark and a dismal day for the people of Judah. But Isaiah looks ahead. 
And he sees a great day coming. He sees a day in which God would lift them up out of this darkness and out of this despair by sending his Messiah. To the people of Isaiah's day, the message of Isaiah chapter 9 was a message of hope. It was a, a, a great message that, that encouraged them and strengthened them as they prepared to deal with the circumstances of the world they were living in. Now, it's important to notice as it begins that we're told, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The idea of unto us reminds us Jesus came for our benefit. Right? The Messiah was coming for the people. Not primarily for himself, but for the sake of others. What Jesus came to do was for our benefit and for our sake. It also tells us he was a son given, which is reminiscent of John 3.16, where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's also reminiscent of Isaiah 7.14, where it tells us that a virgin would conceive and would bear a son, and they would call his name Emmanuel. Now, if we were to look at Matthew chapter 1, we would see that Emmanuel was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So, what we see in Isaiah 6, particularly verse 6, is Jesus. Jesus is the child born. Jesus is the son given. And as he came, he would give light for darkness, he would give joy in misery, and he would give peace in conflict. And he would do this in part through these four names he was given in this passage. Right? The wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Now today we're looking at Jesus as the Everlasting Father. A part of what it means for Jesus to be the Everlasting Father is that He would be the ultimate revelation of what the Father is like. Jesus fulfilled this part so completely and so perfectly that He would tell His disciples, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. Jesus could be this perfect revelation of what God the Father was like because, as Jesus would also say, I and my Father are one. Jesus, through His life, ministry, and teaching, has revealed to us what God is like because Jesus is God. He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a guy. He is God who took on human flesh. Now, not only has Jesus the Messiah perfectly revealed the Father to us, Jesus has also made it possible for us to be brought to the Father into the kind of relationship we were meant to have. Now, if we were to go to Genesis, we would find that when God created the world and He placed man and woman in the garden, that there was this kind of intimate relationship they had. That it was meant to be the kind of relationship between a father and his children. This was the relationship God Desired to have this tender, compassionate, loving relationship. However, Adam and Eve sinned. And in their sin, they fundamentally changed the relationship between God and man. Now the idea of this fundamental shift in our relationship is important for us to understand. Because it's a very common idea to be taught in our day that we are all God's children. And therefore, everyone has God as their father. But, but is this true? Regardless of anything else, are all people God's children? Regardless of anything else, can all people legitimately say, God is my father? 
Well, before we answer, we have to consider the words of Jesus himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Neither I came of myself, for he sent me. If God were your father. Well, that's interesting. Especially in light of the idea, all people are just children of God. And God is everyone's father. If, that's conditional. So, if God is not their father, who who could be? Well, Jesus actually tells us in a, a few verses later. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and bode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, speaketh of his own. He is a liar, the father of lies. Well, that's, that's quite challenging, isn't it? It certainly goes against the idea we're all naturally God's children, and therefore God is everyone's father, which is so common in our day. You know, the hard, challenging, but true statement is, apart from Jesus, no one is naturally a son of God. No one is naturally a child of God. We're not naturally born into the family of God. We have to be supernaturally reborn into the family of God. We, we have to be adopted by God to be a part of His family. Jesus as the Messiah came in part to make it possible for us to be adopted into the family of God, to become His children so God would be our Father. Galatians says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because we're sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of the Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, an heir of God through Christ. So, first, when the fullness of time has come, Jesus came. It's a significant phrase. It means when the time was right. You know, again, we're first told about the coming of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, right after the fall, Adam and Eve sins. God comes walking in the garden. He seeks for them. He calls them on the carpet about their sin. He deals with the serpent. And then He promises the serpent that the day would come when the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. That's the very first promise of the Messiah. But the Messiah didn't come in Genesis. Although Genesis tells us some about the Messiah. And then when you go all through the Old Testament, you find always in every book there's a hint here, a picture there, a prophecy there about who the Messiah would be and what family He would come from and what He would be like and what He would do. But the time was never right until we get to the book of Matthew. And so from Genesis 3 to the time of Matthew, humanity groaned under the condemnation of sin while they waited on the coming Messiah who would crush the serpent's head and He would set them free. All of the Old Testament saints, they looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come. All of the Old Testament was building toward the day when Jesus would come upon the earth. And then when the time was right, according to God's timetable, the Savior came. 
He was born and placed in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem. But when the Messiah came, He wasn't just a guy. God sent forth His Son who was made of a woman, made under the law, but He was to redeem those who were under the law. He was of humanity, but He wasn't just human. Because no human could accomplish the things the Messiah needed to accomplish. He wasn't an angel. For no angel could accomplish what the Messiah needed to accomplish. The only being in the entire universe who could accomplish what needed to be accomplished was in fact God who came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, who cast off a a measure of His glory, the glory He had had since before the creation of the world. He was born in humble beginnings. He lived a, a sinless life. And throughout His life, He did great miracles. He taught amazing things. He, he did. He lived this perfect life where He never once did anything but what the Father wanted Him to do. He never violated God's Word in the spirit of the law or the letter of the law or in anything else. But after 33 years of life and miracles and ministry, He was betrayed by one of His closest friends. He was taken and publicly humiliated, publicly beaten, stripped naked and nailed to a Roman cross where He suffered and He bled and He died. And yet the cross was not a surprise. It was the point of his life. The baby in the manger was born to be the Savior on the cross. He came for the very explicit purpose of dying on the cross. He didn't just come to do miracles. He didn't just come to teach great things. He didn't just come to give us an example of how to live and how to interact with others. He came to die. But not not die for any reason He had done wrong. He came to die for us. He took our punishment. Our sins deserved the wrath of God. And on the cross, Jesus willingly took all the wrath against all of our sin, until He cried out, It is finished. And after He had paid the penalty for our sins, He died and He was laid in a tomb for three days. After three days, He rose from the dead, eternally victorious over sin and death. Now because of His sinless life and His sacrificial death and His victorious resurrection, we can be redeemed from the curse of the law. We can be redeemed from the punishment of the law. We can be redeemed from slavery to sin. With His life, with His blood, He purchased our freedom. And He set us free. And in the process of doing this, He also gave us a new relationship with God. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Now instead of being separated from God through our rebellion, now instead of, as Jesus said, Satan being our father, God is our father. We have been born again and we have been adopted into the family of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, 
in the Roman world, adoption was kind of different than it is now. For one thing, in the Roman world, you typically didn't adopt children because you didn't know how that child would grow up. More often than not, you adopted a grown-up, someone who had already proved themselves as being worthy of the family name, someone who would not bring shame onto your family. Another interesting fact about the Roman adoption was when someone was adopted, the child, the adopted child had the immediate responsibility and the immediate rights of a birth child. So, in, of course, in their world, the oldest child, the oldest son, was typically the one who inherited everything. Well, if I had a son who, if Blaine was my son, but I didn't want Blaine to inherit, so I, I adopted Aaron. Immediately upon being adopted by me, Aaron became the one who was the inheritor. He is the one who would do it. Even though he wasn't a natural born son, he had all of the rights and all of the privileges of the natural born child instantly. When God adopted us, he made us his own. Just as the Roman adoption didn't make a second class son or daughter, God's adoption doesn't make us second class Citizens in the kingdom, regardless of what we've done, regardless of the life we've lived, all all of that is gone, which leads us to the second area. The adopted child completely lost all rights in the old family. They were looked upon as a new person. All the debts and all of the obligations associated with the old family and the old life were instantly and forever gone. They were canceled and they were abolished. And it was as if they had never been there. The person could not be held responsible for any of those things before because he was new now. A new creation, a new person in a new family. When God adopts us as his children, the old passes away and the new has come. We're not what we were prior to coming to Jesus. The, the sins and the failures and, and all of the stuff of our past it is taken away. And we are brand new creations, brand new creatures, Second Corinthians says, in Christ Jesus. So God does not identify us by what we were. He identifies us by what we are. His children through adoption. Children He chose to adopt. Children He looked down upon, saw our lives, saw what we had done, knew everything about us, and He said, you're mine. I'm choosing you for myself. And that's amazing. It is amazing to think God looked down at us and chose us in that way. And there is much that is new now that we are the adopted children of God. Paul says in Romans 8 that we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, there is so much that changes when we're adopted, we couldn't look at it all. So I've picked two things to quickly-ish talk about. And this is one. Spirit of bondage to fear is an interesting phrase. And it pictures, prior to salvation, people being enslaved to fear. But now that we've been born again, and we've been adopted, we've received the spirit of adoption, which frees us 
from the bondage the spirit of fear brings into our lives. We have been freed from being slaves to fear as well as being slaves to sin. Now, we all understand the idea of being afraid. We've all been afraid at one point or another. But that's really not the idea of being in bondage to fear, the spirit of fear. It's not occasionally afraid. Someone with a spirit of fear are slaves to those fears. It it, it almost pictures someone who is constantly gripped by fear. Fear affects almost every decision they make. The way they live their life is gripped by fear. It's dominated by one fear or another. And, And it could be any number of fears. It could be fear of suffering, fear of disease, fear of unemployment. Fear of a loss of financial security, fear of not measuring up, fear of failure, fear of disapproval, fear of blame, fear of death, fear of traumatic trials, fear of the loss of position, fear of the loss of our spouse, fear of the loss of our children, fear of punishment, fear of condemnation, fear of rejection. And and it could go on and on. But it's essentially... People are hindered. They can't go on. I I can't do that. I would love to do that. But what if? What if everything goes bad? What if I try to do this and the world falls apart? This year, 2020, is a perfect example. Everything in our world right now is trying to bring us into bondage to fear. Be afraid. Be afraid of the virus. Be afraid of the vaccine. Be afraid of President Trump. Be afraid of President Biden. Be afraid of this. Be afraid of that. Be afraid. And as children of God, we're not meant to live in that kind of bondage. Second Timothy reminds us, God has given us, has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The life dominated by fear does not come from God. God has not given us the spirit of fear. It is from the enemy, always from the enemy, who is seeking to steal, kill, destroy, hinder, and hold us back from doing the things God would have us to do. And through the spirit of adoption, we have been set free. I think the idea of the spirit of adoption setting us free from being in bondage to fear is the spirit of adoption cries out, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption says, remember who you are. The spirit of adoption says, remember who your father is. Think of it like when I was a kid. I was was a fearful kid of a lot of things. I was afraid of driving. I was afraid of going into the woods by myself. I was afraid of, I'd seen horror movies, so I knew what was in the woods at night. I I was afraid of a lot of different things. But if my dad was with me, I'd go into the woods at night. I didn't care. Jason Voorhees would regret the day he tangled with Jimmy Ross. I could drive with my dad with me. Because if I messed up, my dad was there. I, I could do anything so long as my dad was with me. Because I knew who he was. I knew he was for me, and I knew what he could do. And that seems to be the picture here. The world says, be afraid, but we say, you don't know who my father is. My father is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
My Father is the creator and the sustainer of all that there is. My Father loves me with unconditional love. My Father chose me and called me and saved me and keeps me and removes condemnation from me. No, no, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid of the election no matter how it goes. I don't have to be afraid of the vaccine. I don't have to be afraid of the virus. I don't have to be afraid of the economy. I don't have to be afraid because God is my Father. We aren't slaves to fear because we are in the grips of our Heavenly Father who can take care of us no matter what happens for He is greater than all. And nothing nor anyone can snatch us from His hand which also is a huge thing. A part of God being our Father is the realization His love for us doesn't change. His love for us is not up And down and here and there. His love for us is unchanging. Look at this verse. I love this. For I am persuaded. Neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers. Nor things present nor things to come. Nor height nor depth. Nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul states none of those things can separate us from God's love. Not just God. But they can't separate us from God's love. Death. Death is a fearful thing at times. But it doesn't separate us from God. It ushers us in the presence of our Father. Life. Nothing in this life can separate us from the love of God. There's no hardship, no trial, no person, no circumstance. No mistake we make even that can separate us from the love of God. It says angels, and, and I'm going to call or angels nor principalities, I'm going to call that evil spiritual powers. Because I don't believe good angels would ever try to separate us from God's love. But we know we're in a spiritual battle. When we read scripture, we know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. And they attack and they hurt and they bring lots of difficulties into our life. But here's the reality they can attack and they can do their worst, they can become a thorn in the flesh. They can make our lives miserable. They can oppress us. They can try to bring fear to us. They can do what they can do. But in the end, we will see Jesus has made a spectacle of them on the cross and has essentially humiliated them and won the victory. And we get to be a part of that great victory. And they cannot separate us from God's love. The tide of time, nor things present, nor things to come. There's nothing in our lives right now that's going on that will separate us from the love of God. And there is nothing that will come into our lives in the future. I don't know what 2021 holds. I sure wouldn't have thought 2020 held what it held. But no matter what 2021 holds, does the world get better? Does the world get worse? Does not matter. Whatever comes will not separate us from the love of God. No created thing, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Height and depth have various interpretations through the years, but it just I think it refers to the full expanse of creation. It means nothing in all of existence can separate us from the love of God. Instead, no matter what this world holds or what comes into our lives, all they prove is the truth of Psalm 73, 26. Even if our heart and flesh fail us, God is, the, is our strength and our portion forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus Our Lord. We have access to this love. We experience this love. We are held in this love. 
through our faith in Jesus Christ. So long as Jesus is my Lord, there is nothing in all of existence that can separate me from God's love. That is guaranteed by the death of Jesus on the cross in my behalf. If God loves me enough that He would send Jesus to die for my sin, then God loves me enough to hold me through the tide of time, mistakes in my life, things that cause my life to be difficult no matter what. The circumstances of life are not a good indicator of God's love for us. The great indicator, the great testimony of God's love. It's not how easy our life is, how smoothly things go. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. If God would keep His promise of sending One who would crush the head of the serpent, though it meant the death of his son. Surely he will do all the rest. Nothing could be greater than that. God's love for us, because of Jesus, guarantees God's love is eternal. This happens as the Holy Spirit works as the spirit of adoption in our life. One last thing quickly. You see the spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. The word used to describe God, Abba, is an Aramaic term. The closest English idea would be that of Daddy or Papa. It was a term of great endearment, great intimacy, great closeness, respect. It's one of the first words a Hebrew child would learn. And since it applied such intimacy... The Jewish people would never use that to refer to God. God was the father of the nation, but they would not say God was their individual father. And they certainly would say God was not say God was their Abba. But Jesus, who came, cried out in the garden and he called God Abba. Taught us to pray, taught us to call God our father. Paul took this precedent and he began to apply it semi-consistently throughout his books. The Spirit of God within us enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. It pictures the kind of relationship we're supposed to have with God because of what Jesus has done. Our relationship with God is not meant to be distant. It's not meant to be formal. It is not meant to be one based upon fear that God may at any point smite us for failing. Instead, it is meant to be the kind of relationship of a father and his dearly loved child. Now, for me, that has never been a problem to imagine God in that way. I had a wonderful dad who loved me, disciplined me when I needed, but was there for me. And no matter what, no matter how much trouble I was in, I, I never doubted my dad loved me and in the end was going to be for me. I understand not everybody had that kind of relationship with their dad. And so for you, father might not mean what it does to me. But the best way I could say to take this and to learn from it would be imagine the kind of dad you wished you had. The kind of father you wished your dad had been. And that's the kind of dad God is. That's the picture. One who loves you. One who supports you. One who's there for you. One who is on your side. One who chooses you. Who picks you does correct you when the need is there. God is not an indulgent Father, but He is a loving Father, a gracious Father, a merciful Father. 
And we, we go to him as his children. We have access to him constantly. We can pray about anything. We can talk to him at any time. And here's the great thing. All of this was God's idea. This was his plan. This was his one. Ephesians 1 says that all of this brought him great pleasure. God wanted this kind of relationship with you and I to such an extent that he would send his son to die the horrible death on the cross just so. He could choose us and call us and save us and adopt us as his children. That's the kind of father God is. That's the kind of father he wants to be to you, to me, and to everyone. So let me ask you, how would you say your relationship with God is? Would you say you have the kind of relationship where God is your father and you understand you are his dearly loved child? Do you have a kind of closeness with God that would exist between a father and his dearly loved child? Do you have the kind of freedom that would exist between a father and his dearly loved child. This kind of relationship is available to everyone who would repent of their sin and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. So how is your relationship with God? That's the key question for all of us today. I'm going to ask you to stand, to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want to talk to those who would first say they are Christians. You have repented. You have believed in Jesus. How is your relationship with God? Is it the kind of relationship that reflects the intimacy of a father to his dearly loved child? Has the spirit of adoption freed you from bondage to the spirit of fear? Does the Spirit within you lead you to cry out, Abba, Father, because you know you're loved, you're accepted, you're received by Him? Dear friend, if not, it can be that way. It's meant to be that way. That's the thing. It's meant to be that way. Right now, at this moment, you say, but I've done all this. God does not love some future version of you that has everything all squared away. God does not want this kind of relationship with some future version of you that is cleaned up and got the world all lined out. God wants this kind of relationship with you right now as you are. Believe it. Embrace it. Seek God and say, what holds me back? Also, and ask if those of you, if you're here, but you have never personally made the decision to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ... I want to be clear. God loves you. Jesus died for you. But you are not yet, at this moment, a child of God. Right now, God the Father has paved the way. Right now, God the Son has paid the penalty. Right now, God the Holy Spirit is working and drawing. But you must respond. You must surrender your life and cry out to Jesus. You must choose. It it, it is your choice. You have to make the choice. You have to cry out. You have to come to Jesus. You have to let the Spirit lead you. God wants you. And He loves you. But it is your choice.
What I want to encourage you today is if you have never answered the call of the Spirit to come to Jesus and be saved and then be adopted as a child of God, do that today. You are the only one who can make that decision. Your parents can't make it for you. Your wife can't make it for you. Your husband can't make it for you. Your grandparents can't make it for you. It is your decision. Choose Jesus today. Embrace Him as your Lord and as your Savior. And be adopted and welcomed into the family of God. I'm going to pray. And after I do, we'll be dismissed or we'll have... We're not going to be dismissed. We'll be move on. But I want to give just a moment of silence, just a time to respond. If you want to come to the altar, you can. If you want to pray where you are, you can. Most important thing this morning is that you respond to God in this time as He is dealing with you.